0: God and Father, we ask in the name of Your Son, our Lord Jesus, that You would send the Spirit of God to help each of us now to understand the truth and to apply it to our hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Take your Bibles. And let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. We're actually going to start in 1 Corinthians at chapter 9, and then we're going to um, go into the second letter that Paul wrote, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. If you are visiting with us this morning, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians now since the beginning of this year, and um, we've been moving through verse by verse, chapter by by chapter. And uh, those of you who have been here, You will remember that last Sunday morning I spoke from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so you're saying, okay, John, you've just gone to chapter 9. Why are you skipping chapter 8? Well, I'm going I'm going to skip chapter 8 today, but I am going to go into chapter 8 next Sunday morning. And let me tell you the reason why. From chapters 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul shifts his focus. Now, he's still talking about holiness. That was a problem in the Corinthian church. There was so much unholy living and, and paul's going to focus on that but in chapters 5 through 7 his focus is sexual holiness from chapters 8 through 10 he begins to talk about spiritual holiness what do i mean by that well in chapters 8 and 10 he addresses the issue of idolatry and in chapter 10 he makes an alarming state statement around verse 21 22 where he talks about the corinthians participating with demons. So when we think of the occult, or sorry, when we think of idol- idolatry and we think of participation with, with demons, the word we normally use to describe that is the word occult. And occult comes from the Latin word occultus, which simply means the things that are done in the dark, the things that are hidden. And so we're going to talk uh, next Sunday morning about the occult and about the work of demons. And um, for two Sundays in a row, we're, gonna, we're basically going to talk about the work of demons in the life of believers. So I want to skip chapter 8 this morning, not because I, 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 I want to, but just because I feel that when we get to chapter 9, the Apostle Paul goes down a little bit of a rabbit trail, and I'll explain that in a moment. But I want to take chapter 8 and chapter 10 together because of the importance of Paul's teaching to us today. So we're in chapter 9 today, beginning at verse 7. And as I said, the Apostle Paul goes down a little bit of a rabbit trail. Now, it's all tied in to what he says from chapters 8 through 10 about spiritual holiness. But he, he goes down this rabbit trail for just a moment, and he talks in this rabbit trail about Christian stewardship, about financial giving. And um, I want you to see there, 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 there are two things that I want to say by way of preface to this message, uh, as an introduction to this message. And the first is that here in chapter 9, uh, Paul gives us the specific principle of supporting financially those who preach the, go- the gospel. And he starts with this in verse 7. But what he says about the specific principle of supporting those financially who preach the gospel of christ what he says is rooted in the old testament writings so um he he starts with a question in verse 7 who serves as a soldier at his own expense Um, what he's basically saying is a soldier deserves his wage and so he refers to the law of moses verse 8 do i say this merely from a human point of view doesn't the law say the same thing verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the next line says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? And The answer to that is no. He's talking about those who preach the gospel. And he uses this illustration from the Old Testament of an ox treading out grain. Remember, the grain would, be, would have a husk over it. And so, what would happen is they would attach an ox or an oxen to, to a, a beam or to a yoke, and they would walk around in a circle on a threshing floor, and all the grain would be poured on the floor, and the ox are just, the oxen are treading it out. In other words, they're getting the, the bits of husk off of the grain. And when, whenever an ox would do that, they would never muzzle the ox. Why? Well, they want the ox to keep working. They want to get their money's worth out of the ox, and if you muzzle him, he's going to get hungry very, very fast because he's working hard. And so you don't muzzle the ox. In other words, you allow him to eat some of the grain while he's treading it out on the floor. And essentially, Paul says, well, that should be true for those who preach the gospel. And so in verse 13, he makes this even clearer when he says, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. Now, here he's making a reference to the Old Testament priests, the Levites. And if you go to Numbers chapter 18, he doesn't quote Numbers 18, but this is a reference to it. In Numbers 18, God makes it clear that the Israelites were to bring their tithes, that is 10% of what they had earned, they were to bring that to the temple, to the tabernacle where the priests served. And this was normally in, in, in portions of meat that they would, they would bring so that those tithes uh, could be used by the Levites because this is how they made their living. In other words, they were they were to be financially su- supported. Now there are three Old Testament tithes that are actually referred to in the Bible. The first was a tithe that was for the poor; it was for aliens, orphans, and widows, and and um, and you see that in the Book of Ruth, where the Israelites would bring a ten percent of what they had to support the poor, and then another ten percent was given to support their worship, the feasts, the celebrations. But then another 10% was given to support the priests. That's what Paul's referring to here. And notice the next line, verse 14, in the same way. In other words, he's saying this Old Testament tithe principle, in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the the gospel. And so um, what Paul says here is rooted in this Old Testament tithe. And uh, now I want you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. We've looked at the specific principle of supporting financially those who preach the gospel, rooted in the Old Test- Testament writings, but now in Second in Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, um, the Apostle Paul gives us some general principles, general principles to guide us in our giving. And what he gives us here in chapters 8 and 9 is the most comprehensive list of guidelines that you will find anywhere in the New Testament writings concerning giving. Now, we need to give some background so you understand the context in which Paul writes chapters 8 and 9. In the year A.D. 46, a severe famine swept through the Middle East. And one area that was particularly adversely affected by this famine was Judea. And the churches in Judea were very young churches. This is at the beginning of the days of the apostles spreading the gospel throughout the world. And so these Jewish churches were suffering during that period of time. And so the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 is writing to the Corinthians who live in Greece... And he's pointing out to them that they had made a commitment, they'd made a decision earlier. They'd expressed their intentions to give financially to help the Jewish churches in Judea so that they could live through this famine. And they had forgotten what they had promised to do. They, you know, we, we all have intentions that we're going to give, we're going to meet a need and they basically had not fulfilled the commitment that they made. So the Apostle Paul's writing and he's saying to them, hey, (laughs) you made a commitment, you expressed an intention, and now you have an opportunity to give. And he's challenging them, he's encouraging them to give so that their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Judea can survive this famine. So that's the context in which he writes. But keep this in mind. What he says about giving here are general principles that are timeless in nature, but they're rooted in this first century famine. So, if you look at chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, and he refers to the churches of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia was just a little bit north of Greece. And Corinth is in the south, in Greece. And Paul refers to the Macedonian believers because they made a decision and they carried through and fulfilled their intentions of helping the Jewish churches. So Paul says, Corinthians, uh, I want to challenge you by the example of the Macedonians because they made a decision and they carried that decision through. And I want you to do the same. So... He uses their example here, beginning at verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace, and the word grace there means generosity, the generosity that God has given the Macedonian churches. Notice what he says in verse 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, these people were poor, But it welled up in rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, they gave more than they actually could give. He says, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for this privilege of sharing in the service to the saints, and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord. Now what Paul says here really is astounding. Here are, uh, are these churches, these people who are extremely poor. He uses the word extreme, extremely poor, and they gave more than they were able to give. And this, I think, is a real powerful reminder to all of us of an incredible truth, that, the generos- that generosity is not the prerogative of the rich, but is most often displayed by those who have the least to give. You see, they weren't just responding to this need of famine relief. They were actually responding to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because if you go down to verse 9, chapter 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, they were giving not just because of the need, but because they themselves personally had experienced the grace of God in Jesus, the generosity of God. And so therefore, they wanted to be generous and to help those who were in real need. So Paul uses them as an example. And the example of the Macedonians is a springboard by which Paul tells us a number of great truths. Here's where we're gonna go today. I wanna point out first of all that there are four principles that Paul gives about giving. Secondly, there are four products of giving, what happens when we give. And finally, as our takeaway take points, there are four very crucial applications from this message to us today, all from this passage. So let's talk first of all about four important principles of giving, and the first one is found in chapter 9, verse 6. We're going to call it the principle of of investment remember this verse 6 chapter 9 6 whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously the principle of investment now it's really clear if you're a farmer you understand this even if you're not a farmer it doesn't take rocket science if you don't sow seed into the ground You're not going to reap anything if you want to have a harvest you have to put your seed into the ground now if a farmer has no harvest by the end of the summer or the beginning of fall and the weather conditions have been good but there's no harvest at all if there's been the perfect amount of rain that's followed that 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 has fallen but there's still no harvest at all what does that tell you about that farmer He's not a very good one. (laughs) It tells you that he hasn't sown seed into the ground because if you sow, you reap. So here's my farm illustration this morning. I went and bought myself some corn this week. You can't believe how expensive corn is in March in Hamilton. And I could barely find any for sale, but I did. Because it's not in season, you got to buy four of these suckers and all I needed was one. But we, we call this corn on the cob, but the real true term is an ear of corn. This is an ear of corn. Isn't the English language an interesting, an ear of corn, right? Like, why do you call it an ear? I mean, English is a very hard language to learn. For some of you who don't have English as your first language, you you understand exactly what I'm saying. I remember years ago in Toronto, a a brother from Hong Hong Kong said said to me, he says, it's so hard to learn how to speak English. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, it's very confusing. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, in Toronto, we drive on the parkway and we park in the driveway. (laughs) He said, it doesn't make any sense. And you know what, he's right. We have all these words that we use. It's a a flock of birds, it's a school of fish, it's a a gaggle of geese. Well, why all these different words? We make it very confusing. So this is an ear of corn. Now, each kernel on this ear of corn is actually a seed. So if I take one of these kernels off and place it into the ground, eventually what's gonna grow? Wow, that took rocket science, didn't it? Yeah, you're brilliant, you're brilliant. Okay, yeah, corn, corn. Now, now, how many, how many, how many seeds are on this ear of corn? Anyone want to take a guess? I counted them this morning. If, if you can guess the exact amount, we will give you today's offering. How's that? How's that? 623. And a half and a half and a quarter and a quarter and a quarter. No, <laughs> No. sorry. I counted 494. It's a very small cob, but it's approximately five, 500, and it's very small. Now, for every seed of corn that you plant into the ground, you get a stalk, right? And on the stalk, there are usually three to four ears. So to round it off, it's about 2,000 kernels of corn for every one single kernel of corn that you plant into the ground. That's, that's not bad. That's, that's a pretty good invest, investment, one to a thousand. The principle of investment is this, you get if you give. You get if you give. If you, if you sow sparingly, just a few seeds you're only going to reap sparingly. But if you sow a lot of seeds, you're going to reap generously. That's what Paul's saying. So let me put it in another way. When you give your money to God, to God's work, you are investing with God. Now, if there's anything we know about invest, investments, when we invest our money, we want to make sure we're doing it with a reputable person, with uh, some kind of a... Um, an organization that we that has a, a good reputation, giving, is investing with God. Number two, second principle. The principle of identity. Now it's implied in verse six, but it's it's also clear in the illustration that I'm giving. If you plant corn in the ground, what is the identity of the plant that comes out of the ground? It's corn. You don't get anything else. If you're putting corn in the ground and hoping to get tomat- tomatoes, you definitely are not a farmer. You're not even a gardener for that matter. If you plant corn, you reap corn. Now, the application of this principle is very, very broad. It, this, isn't, this isn't just the principle that relates to money. For example, if in, uh, in uh, Galatians, in the book, the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul writes, don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows. He goes on to say, <coughs> the one who sows to please his sinful nature will from his sinful nature reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will from the Holy Spirit reap life everlasting so if you if you are always losing your temper and you you are an angry person you have a root of bitterness in your in your heart and that, that root manifests itself in all the time in many different ways what are you going to reap you're going to get the same if you if you have a critical spirit and you are always going around criticizing this and criticizing that what are you going to reap criticisms coming but but if you are kind and you always speak gentle words and encouraging words and kind words to others that's what's coming back at you. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Here's the bottom line. You get what you give. And this is true in finances also. Because Jesus said in Luke 6, give, he was talking about money, give and it will be given to you. And he went on and he said, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. He's, the illustration he's using is of like a bushel, a basket, and, and you pour the grain in and, and you want to get more in. What do you do? Well, you, Well, you shake it just like you would put sugar into a bowl and you shake the bowl to get the sugar to settle so you can get more in or rice or whatever the product is. You shake it and then you press it down because you want to accommodate more in the basin or the basket that you have. And Jesus says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you're being generous again, then generosity is coming back to you. So let's sum up the first two principles. Principle invest, investment, you get if you give. Secondly, the principle of ident- identity, you get what you give. So this brings us now to the principle of increase. Again, verse 6, sow sparingly, reap sparingly. Sow generously, reap generously. Look at what he says in verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase. See that? Increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Verse 11 You will be made rich in every way. Why? Get it all for yourself? No. So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving. God. So, the principle of increase then means that you get more than you give. Again, what Jesus said, given it will be given to you for with the measure that you use, so it will be measured to you. So, if there are four, if there's one stock that has four ears of corn, and this is a small ear, you're getting 2,000 for every seed of corn that you place in the ground, that's a pretty good increase. But imagine if you were a farmer and you took one kernel of corn and you planted it in the ground and all you got was one kernel of corn. Is it worth your time? Is it worth your effort? No, you want to get out of farming fast because of all the time you expend and the energy you expend, you're not getting anything back. Listen, I want to I want to make a promise to you today, okay? I'm making a promise and you can hold me to this promise. You cannot you cannot invest in anything that will pay a higher dividend than investing in the things of God. I'm going to say it again. You cannot invest in anything that will pay a higher higher dividend than investing in the things of God. Friends, there is no financial plan. There's no retirement plan. There are no stocks and bonds. There's no real estate deal. There's no investment that you will make that can pay a higher dividend than giving to support the work of God. The return is incredible. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus has a conversation with a young man and he's referred to as the rich young ruler. He's a young man who was wealthy and he seemed to have some political status as well. The man comes to Jesus, he's quite intrigued by Jesus, and he asks an important question. He says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. Now, how would you answer that? I mean, I'd say immediately, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll have eternal life. But that's not how Jesus answers him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this. It's astounding. He says, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Now, that sounds like a contradiction to what the Bible says. Because is Jesus saying then that, that we can get eternal life by selling things and giving them to the poor? Is Jesus teaching that, that we get to heaven by doing good works? Is that what he's saying? We see, it sounds that way on the surface. But when you, when you look at the story in a very careful way, you begin to see that Jesus knew something about this young man. And this young man already had a God. He already had a Lord, and his God and his Lord was his money. Was his money. He had already broken the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. And how do we know that, that, this, that money was his God? Because, because after Jesus spoke to him and said that to him, Essentially, Jesus was telling him to repent, change your way. And the Bible tells us that the man walked away. He walked away from Jesus. He walked away from Jesus. And when he walked away from Jesus, he walked away from eternal life. The most foolish decision any person could ever make. And then Jesus made this astounding statement He said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Do you know how small the hole is in a needle? You put your thread through that. It's easier for a camel to go through the the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God. Now, listen, (laughs) even if you find the skinniest camel around, the sucker has a big hump and he can't get through. And when the disciples heard Jesus say this, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, the disciples blurt out, well, who then can be saved? Now, why did they ask that? Because they believed that if you were rich, you had an in with God, that the evidence of you being in with God, was the fact that God had blessed you financially. And so the disciples go, well, if people who've really been blessed financially aren't going to get in, then who can get in? And at that point, Peter spoke, spoke up. And, um, and, you know, usually Peter put his foot in his mouth. This time Peter said something real good. He said, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. Everything. And here's what Jesus said next. I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive A hundred times as much. In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, eternal life. A hundred times more. Now, those of us who've come to faith in Christ, and the price has been that our family has rejected us, We've lost our brother, we've lost our sister, we've lost our mother, we've lost our father because of our faith. And there are many here in this room today, and you know that's your experience, that there's been a turnoff off the, with them since the day you came to Christ. But what have you gained? You've gained hundreds of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ. It's the principle Of investment. It's the principle of increase. If we are willing to give up for Christ and the gospel's sake, then we will receive. Now look at what he says again in chapter 9, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse verse 8. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. That is all generosity abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God's going to keep increasing. For yourself? No. So that you can continue to abound in every good work. If you give to meet another need, then God is not going to let you down. So the principle of increase also means that God is not cheap that God wants to bless you. And friends, when this true truth really grips your heart, you will look for opportunities to give because you cannot outgive God. Going to say it again, you cannot outgive God. The principle of increase means you get more than you give. Let's talk about the fourth principle now. And it's the principle of interval and again it's implied here in verse 6 9 6 whoever sows sparingly will also meaning it's coming later reap sparingly there's an interval of time between putting seed into the ground and reaping the harvest that comes from that seed every farmer understands this plant in spring reap in late summer or early fall. Every investor understands this. You put your money in, you don't get immediately, but over time your investment builds and you receive back later. The problem that we have when it comes to money and receiving, we want to get it all now. We want to get it all now. And if that's our motive, oh, I'm giving in order to get, and I want to get it now, this kind of fast food culture mentality that so many of us have, then all that reveals is that we're giving for the wrong reasons. We give, and then we wait. And we don't worry or fret about it because it's in God's hands. But if you don't reap, sorry, you don't reap, The day that you sow, we have to give God time. And so again, Paul says this in Galatians 6. He says, don't be weary in doing good. Why? At the proper time, you will reap if you do not give up. You'll get the harvest if you don't give up. So we need then to determine that we're going to sow, determine that we're going to trust God, and determine that then when we will wait and leave the increase in God's hands. Let's summarize all of these four principles. You reap if you sow. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. And you reap later than you sow. These are the principles of giving from 2 Corinthians 9. So, what happens then when we give? Are there any results to our giving? Does, does our giving produce anything? Is there any product that goes with our giving? And I think there are also four things that we see here in this passage. So, what we want to look at here is we want to answer what happens to us, what happens to others when we give, and what happens to God when we give. The first product we see is that we prosper both financially and spiritually. Look at chapter 9, verse 10 again. Chapter 9, verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So you're going to increase in your store of seed. That's the financial, physical aspect. But then there's a spiritual part to this too, and it will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Two kinds of growth. <clears throat> now, I know some of you may be cringing a little bit because we're, we're so familiar now with hearing prosperity gospel preachers talk about these verses, and anything that sort of smacks of giving in order to get, and we just sort of react. But friends, We have to look clearly at what's being said said here. Regardless of the false teaching that is out there, what is this verse actually saying? Is Paul actually saying that if we give to God, that God will bless us? Yes. That is exactly what he's saying. Let's not distort what he's saying, but let's accept what he's saying. Think of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said a lot about money in the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, if you read the parables and the teachings of Jesus, the one topic he talked about more than anything else was the topic of money. Because money has an effect on our lives. And in Matthew 6, Jesus said, where your treasure is, do you know the rest of the verse? There will your heart be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be too. In other words, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will follow. Your your heart is always going to follow your treasure. If you place your treasure in all the things of this world, then your heart is going to be in this world. But if you place all of your treasure in the kingdom of God, in things that pertain to the spirit of God, then, then that's where your heart is going to be too. If you you give to things that pertain to the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God and the work of God and the worship of God and the support of preaching the gospel of Christ, if you put your money there, then your heart's going to follow. And what happens when your heart follows? You're going to get all caught up in the things of God. The things of God are going to become very important to you. They're going to become essential to your life because that's where your treasure is. Jesus said we're to seek first the kingdom of God. But friends, if your treasure is in the kingdom of God, it's not hard to obey Jesus' command to seek the kingdom first because your heart's already there. Your heart is already there. And the things of the kingdom become central to you god blesses us financially and spiritually through giving secondly another product we prove our love for god look at chapter 9 verse 13. verse 13 because of the service by which you have proved yourselves that is the service of of giving men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. The word prove is there because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. And notice he's talking here not just about the expression, our confession. You see, we can say, oh, I love the Lord because he saved me. I love you, Jesus, because you saved me. There's there's your confession. But now there's there's something tangible that goes with our words, with our confession. There's an actual tangible act of giving. And we're giving in order to express our thanks. Thanks. That's what he's talking about here. You prove what you believe. And so so you're doing something in a tangible way, and in so doing, you're proving your love for God. What you confess with your lips is meaningless if it's not backed up by your actions. We all know the old maxim, that actions speak louder than words. And so today in our worship, we have praised God in, in reading God's word. We we we're singing our praise to God, but we also took an offering. And I would suggest to you that when the offering plate went by and you put your offering on the plate, that that was also an act of thanksgiving to God. It was an act of worship, and in so doing, you're proving your love for God. And that's greater proof of your love for God than even the words that you will speak in worship. There's a third product, and that is that we provide for those in need. Look again at verse 12, chapter 9, verse, verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also flowing with many, in many expressions of thanks to God. It's supplying the needs of God's people. Now, this takes us right back in the context to that famine in Judea. And the giving of the Corinthians then was going to supply for the needs of these people. But the truth, this truth is found throughout the word of God. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Luke, Luke gives us a little cameo shot of the early church in Jerusalem. And he, he talks about their, their large celebration meeting. They, they gathered in the temple and they were praising God. But then he talks about their, their community group Experience. They were meeting in houses, from house to house. They were praising God. And he describes that community life by saying, they sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone as he had need. And so, friends, whether it's an, an offering that we take up here at West Highland for earthquake relief for people in Turk Turkey like we did a few weeks ago, or money that we give in order to support the refugees that we have sponsored to come here, or whether it's for missionaries who we support, or or a school like Heritage College, or Sembec in French Quebec. What are we doing when we give? We're giving to provide for the needs of people and ministries and individuals who serve, serve God. There's one more thing that, that, our, that our giving produces, and that's found in verse 12. In the last line of verse 12, what it says, in many expressions of thanks to God, we promote thanksgiving to God. Look also at verse 11. You'll be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now this is the key because this is the real motive. The real motive behind our giving is we are to give thanks to God for everything that he has given to us, for everything that he's entrusted into our hands to bless us personally, but also so that we can then bless others. We give thanksgiving to God. So we've looked at the principles, we've looked at the products of giving, And now let's focus in on four applications of giving that I think are pertinent to all of us. First of all, we must first give ourselves to God. Look at chapter 8, verse 5. Chapter 8, 5. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5. And they did not do as we expected, but they they gave themselves first to the Lord. Now that's the key. That's really the important point. You see, the issue is not your money or my money. The issue is you. The issue is me. The issue is my heart. The issue is your heart. Listen, it's possible to take all of the principles that I've just taught you this morning from chapters 8 and 9, and it's possible for you to take all those and to make a decision and, 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 and to develop a plan for giving in order that you will ensure that you are a good steward and that you engage in regular, systematic giving. You can do all of that, but if you have not yet first given yourself to the Lord, then you don't really know a thing about giving. The, Pharise- the Pharisees boast, boasted, I give, it, I give 10% of all that I have to the poor, and Jesus criticized them. Why? Because they were giving their money, but they had never given their hearts to God. Look at verse 7, chapter 9, verse 7. Each man should give, chapter 9, verse 7, each man should give what he has decided, what? In his heart to give. What he's decided in his heart to give. Next line, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why would Paul say that? Because there are people who don't give with their hearts. And there are people who just feel pressured to give. And they really don't want to give, even though they do give. And Paul is saying it's it's there are people, it's just not in their heart to give. But we must give with our hearts. <laughs> Years ago we had a we had a brother from our former church who was from India and he went back there to serve there for about six or seven months and he, he was involved in a northern part of India and they, they led quite a few people to Christ and a, a, a baptism was, was about to take place and one of the men who had come to faith in Christ, he, he waded down into the water in the uh, river and everyone was standing on the shore and the pastor was out there in the water and he waded into the water and uh, he realized he still had his wallet in his pocket So he reaches into his pocket, and he he gets out his wallet, and he turns around, and he realizes he's too far from shore to to throw it back. So he just lifts it up in the air. And he wades further into the water, and he goes up to the the pastor. And the pastor just thought he had his hand up praising God, but his intention was, I'm going under the water, but I'm not gonna get my hand wet, I'm not gonna get my wallet wet. But the pastor grabbed his hand, shoved it into his chest, and put him under the water. His wallet got baptized too. <laughs> Listen, some of us have baptized wallets, but not baptized hearts. You follow what I'm saying? It needs to be from the heart. It needs to be from the heart. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't need it. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. How much more wealthy can God get when He already has everything? But God wants you. He wants you to give yourself first to Him. The second application that I would make from these verses is that we must also recognize our individual accountability before God in the use of the finances that God has entrusted to us. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. 9, 7. <coughs> Each man should give what he has decided in his heart. Look at the first four words. Each man should give. Should give. Should that's the accountability piece. Each man, that's the individual piece. We are all individually accountable to God before God in what we do with our finances. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 2 says on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day we worship, on the first day of the week, each one of you, each individual should set aside a sum of money. What's Paul saying? Well, well, giving, giving should happen on the first day of the week where in terms of giving to the Lord's work, of course, giving should happen at all times if there's a need, but in terms of our worship, on the first day of the week, set aside a sum of money, each one. We're all individually accountable to God. Sometimes when, when we look at this topic, we, we all tend to tune out because we kind of think, well, I don't really have a lot. But just, I want you to just think for a moment of how much money you're going to receive in your lifetime. So for example, if you're 25 years of age and, 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 and you're making a wage of 75000 that's not an impossible wage, even at 25, might be a little high, but... But if you're a family of four and you got 75000 I would say you're, you're just barely able to make it if you can make it. So $75,000 a year, and let's say you work for the next 40 years to 65 before you retire, and let's say that during that 40 years you never receive a raise. It's just 75000 each year. And, and, and you don't receive any other kind of money, and, and we always do. In some way in life, we, we, somebody dies, and, and money is willed to us, an inheritance comes to us, an investment is made, and, and we receive money in other ways. But if, if your only source of income was at $75,000 for 40 years, you realize that that's $3 million in 40 years? And now it sounds a little different. You see, in the course of your lifetime, God is going to entrust into your hands an incredible amount of wealth. Even if you're poor, you add it all up. It's a staggering amount of money. And we have to give an account of everything that we've received. Where's it all going to go? What are you going to spend that money on? How are you going to use it? Of course, you're going to, you're going to use it to, to care for the needs of your kids and family. You're going to put food on the table, uh, rent or a mortgage or car payments or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of legitimate expenses in life, and God wants you to be a good steward, and that's part of your service to your loved ones. Of course. But what are you going to accomplish for eternity and for the kingdom of God with whatever sum of money that God is going to put into your hands throughout the course of your life. Each of us must recognize our individual accountability before God. The third application I would make here is that we must, every one of us, make a decision and develop a plan. I want to take you back to verse 7 again. Chapter 9, verse 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. The word decided. See, that decided, a decision has to be made. Some translations say what each man or each person has purposed in his or her heart to give. Now, when you, when you use the word decided or purposed, the idea here is there's thoughtfulness here. You're, you're, you're thinking the issue through. You're thinking it through. It implies that you're taking inventory of what has been entrusted into your hands. There's some kind of a determination that's being made. A decision is being made. Now, I can't tell you what, what your decision needs to be, and I can't tell you what your plan needs to be. That's something that you need to do before God, but I can share with you what my wife and I have decided to do. And you see, we made a decision when we got married. And I've shared this before, so this is not news to many of you here, but we made a decision when we got married that, that we would follow a certain pattern in terms of all that God puts into our hands. And there were a number of things that we considered at that point in time. The first thing we considered was that everything belongs to God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we knew that that truth needed to be a factor in helping us make our decision. Everything belongs to God. The second thing is this, is that God has entrusted some of his wealth to us. Entrusted, that's the key word. It's not just mine, do whatever I want with it. He's entrusted it to me. And the third was, we understood that from the Old Testament writings, that the people of Israel would give a tenth even before the law was given. Abraham gave a tenth of what he'd received because a tenth in the thinking of the people of the ancient world, the tenth was a symbol, a tithe. It was a symbol. It was a symbol of all, of giving God everything you have 10 fingers. You have 10 toes. The totality of my fingers are 10. The totality of my toes are 10. 10 is a symbol of awe. And so they, not under compulsion, not under law, but they determined that they would give 10%. as a principle. Now, the New Testament doesn't say that. But it's an Old Testament principle. And Andrea and I reasoned, well, if that's how people gave in Old Testament times and, and they were under the law not under the grace of God that we have today in Christ, then surely that could be, for us, a minimum. And that's the principle we've lived from. How many years have we been married? I forget, honey. Sorry. 45? What's that? In July, it'll be 45 years. I'm a survivor. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to survive lunch today, but I'm surviving. <laughs> now that, that settled the issue for us, so that we have never argued this. It, it, money has never been a, a source of contention in our relationship and what we give, because we just, we just decided that. It was done once and for all, and we've worked that plan for 45 years. Now, there are times when a special offering will, will come, like something to the building expansion or earthquake relief. And then we will have to ask each other, well, what should we give in that offering? And sometimes my wife will say, I think we should give $1,000. And I'll say, I think we should give $500. And she'll say, John, you're cheap. <laughs> but we've decided that if she says 1000 and I say 500 that we're going with 750 bucks. We've just decided we're going to go half, halfway on it. But you know what normally happens? Normally the number she says is the number that I say. Because over time you develop a harmony in giving and it changes the way you approach money. You need to decide what you're going to do. You need to make a decision and develop a plan. We all need a plan. You know, for many of us, we think that, that Christian giving should, should be determined simply on a whim that when we feel emotionally moved, that's when we give. (laughs) Well, some of us even think that if we're not giving Christianly or biblically or legitimately, unless there's some kind of an emotional stirring that happens when we give, we think we don't need a plan. I can guarantee you this. If you think you are giving what God wants you to give, but you have not planned your giving, You have never given to God what you think you are giving. You will always underestimate. We need to make a decision and develop a plan. And finally, we need to be motivated by the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the last line of chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, what gift is he referring to? He's referring to the Lord Jesus, to the Lord Jesus. God has given us an indescribable gift. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 9, he makes it very, very clear. Look at what he says, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We all know the verse John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave, his only son. Can I change that word? Let me just change it. Let me just nuance what that, what that word is. For God so loved the world that he gave. I'm going to change it. For God so loved the world that he sowed his only son. For God so loved the world that he planted his only son into the stream of humanity. He sowed Jesus into humanity. He planted Jesus into the human race. And in the book of Hebrews, it says that God did this so that he might bring many sons into glory. He sowed his son. He planted his son to bring us as his sons and daughters into glory. God sowed generously when he gave us Jesus. And you and I are the wonderful recipients of that generosity and so the bible tells us excel in the grace of giving keep christ before us at all times his example and excel in the grace of giving i'm going to ask you to stand right now if you would please we're not going to conclude our worship as we normally do with a singing of a song but i just want to lead in prayer and we'll bring our time of worship to a conclusion Again, I want to remind those of you who are members of our church of the important business meeting tonight at 6. Hope you can come early and join us in the fellowship hall downstairs. We'll have refreshments and then an important evening of business together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you this morning for these two passages in the book of 2 Corinthians. For all of the principles about giving that are there for the encouragement that we see about what giving produces and for the necessary applications to our lives. Lord, I pray that you will move upon all of our hearts as disciples of the Lord Jesus so that each of us has made a decision and developed a plan for consistent, regular, systematic giving to meet the needs of the poor to support the work of the Lord, and to worship you in everything that we do. I pray that you will make us all good stewards, and you'll use this message this morning to remind us that there is a financial, an important financial component to our discipleship, and that we will, we will be good disciples of Christ in terms of how we use the finance that you've entrusted into our hands. Do this in our hearts, Lord, to help us, to encourage us, but most importantly, for your great glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.